to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining Alex, I am Jordan McGillis, and I fill the same role here at IER. Our guest today is Kathleen Sagama, the president of the Western Energy Alliance. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thanks. I appreciate your having me on. Can you provide our listeners a little bit of an overview of what the Western Energy Alliance does and how you got involved in the organization? So Western Energy Alliance represents oil and natural gas producers in the Rocky Mountain West. Um, We focus on federal issues from a regional perspective. Um, So we're kind of the tip of the spear on public lands issues, regional air quality issues, um, Endangered Species Act issues, basically any environmental or regulatory policy that can affect the producer in the field at the wellhead. And we have many other member companies that um, are associated with that. So anybody, uh, any type of company that is um, involved in that exploration and production in, in the upstream sector of the oil and natural gas industry. So that's a quick overview of what we do. Can you walk us through how uh, your career, how you uh, went from working in uh, information technology to the role that you're in now? Sure. So I just did a career change. I wanted to get back into policy work, kind of started out my career uh, in military intelligence and just wanted to get back into policy work, kind of away from the tech field. And I just networked into it um, and found uh, Western Energy Alliance and kind of worked my way up to president. Since you've been in that role, what have you uh, learned about the industry and the challenges that it faces in terms of regulations and things like that? Well, I'd say over the 12 years or so that I've uh, been at Western Energy Energy Alliance, I've developed an advocacy method for uh, regulatory affairs that is kind of focused around the fact that um, when you look at regulatory policy in almost any field, what happens is that industry develops solutions and then regulators come in on the back end and make mandatory what industry was doing anyway. So if you look at almost any regulatory policy, um, there are those who will argue that industry won't do anything unless forced by regulation. That's the, uh, you know, the, the left mm-hmm. look at the world in that it doesn't emanate from anything unless it emanates from the government. Of course, because their, their view is that it. anything mm-hmm. that industry is engaged in is rapacious and is with the intent of pulling the wool over the eyes of the public and getting away with something. And we know that that's just not true, that businesses are uh, engaged in creating value and want to do that long term. They're not trying to... Uh, make a short-term profit, and then uh, move on to the next town. Exactly. And so they're the ones that are innovating and doing things more efficiently, more effectively, and that produces a better environmental outcome. So if you look at things like um, horizontal and directional drilling, which where we've significantly reduced the footprint on the land, um, that was done because it's, it's more efficient, it's better for the environment. Um, you know, we developed that technology, but then the government comes in and tries to make mandatory what we were already doing. So you see that in over and over again in any regulatory policy. Um, methane emissions are a great example. Industry has reduced methane emissions 
by 14% over four decades, even as we've increased production of natural gas, i.e. methane, um, by over 50%. So we are constantly driving down those emissions, but you wouldn't know that by listening to regulators. You would think that, you know, we're just wantonly letting these fugitive emissions go and we don't care about them. And, and that's, it's ridiculous because it's the product that we produce and sell. Exactly. Uh, my mind was gravitating to that example as well. Methane is the resource and there's no incentive for a company to let that escape from their process. They want to capture every last drop of it so that they can then turn around and sell it and make money. Uh, and it's beautiful that the market has those incentives, but that's completely overlooked um, in the way that the media talks about these questions. Absolutely. And, you know, what else is, is lacking in the media and certainly from the environmental lobby, because they don't want to acknowledge that there are any trade-offs or balances. But, you know, there's a trade-off and there's a balance with everything, whether it's wind energy or solar or oil and natural gas. You know, it's a, it's a mechanical process. Um, and with any mechanical system, it's not going to be 100%. You know, if you tried to make it where every last molecule was captured, you would make that process so expensive and, and frankly, hazardous in the field, actually. Mm -hmm. But you would make that process so expensive that you would forego much production. And what you would do is by going after very small emissions, you're losing the incredibly huge benefit we provide in the electricity sector, whereby using more natural gas to generate electricity, we have, we have decreased emissions of greenhouse gases uh, many times more than the small amount of leaks in the field. I know one of the other issues that you guys work on quite a bit, um, and it's a challenge for people working in really any industry, is uh, the problem of overlapping regulations where uh, at the federal and state and local level you have different levels of government basically creating regulations that really at the end of the day creates a lot more work for people. Can you talk about uh, Western Energy Alliance's approach to that and how you guys try to work through those problems? We have been very aggressive on a couple of different regulations, and those are um, federal regulation of hydraulic fracturing and uh, what we've already mentioned, regulation of methane emissions. So we have been very aggressive in pushing back on a federal government that is trying to duplicate what states are already doing. And frankly, when it came, well, and also not only duplicating what states are already doing, by regulating fracking and methane emissions, but also grabbing more power that Congress didn't give them. So Congress didn't give the federal government the authority to regulate fracking. States have that authority. Congress didn't give the federal government in the form of the Bureau of Land Management the authority to regulate air quality. It gave EPA and the states the authority to regulate air quality. So when BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, put in place its methane rule, it was usurping authority from another federal agency, frankly, and the states. So we were very aggressive in suing, and we stopped that regulation from going into effect, just like we stopped federal regulation of fracking. And we did that in conjunction with the Independent Petroleum Association of America, IPAA. 
Yeah, the BLM plays an important role for the energy industry um, in a lot of different areas. For people who aren't familiar with sort of the regulatory process for oil and natural gas, can you talk about the permitting process uh, through the BLM and uh, the challenges that exist there? Certainly. So um, because of the fact that the United States government administers about a third of the land surface in the United States, and on that land surface, or under, I should say under that surface, is about a quarter of the oil and natural gas that we produce in the United States every year. So development on public lands is an important resource for the country. It's just where uh, our oil and natural gas resources are found, a mix of private, state, and federal lands. And so when you look at the 700 million acres of federal mineral estates, so 700 million acres that the Bureau of Land Management administers that oil and natural gas that's under that acreage. And most of that is working landscapes um, that are appropriate for oil and natural gas development. There are oil and natural gas resources under national parks and wilderness areas, but we are not allowed to produce that, nor do we want to. So much of that is off limits. But for those working landscapes that are appropriate for oil and natural gas development, the Bureau of Land Management strictly administers that program to make sure that the public lands are protected, wildlife is protected, cultural resources, air quality, many other natural resource values of those public lands um, are protected. And so the Bureau of Land Management has a very stringent process that is frankly much more onerous than on private or state lands. And it takes sometimes years to develop on public lands, on federal lands, whereas on private lands, it could take a year and a half from uh, start of a project to actually, actually when that drill bit starts to turn on that lease. Mm -hmm. So This is a uh, good opportunity for us to... Oh, I'm sorry, Kathleen, go ahead. Go ahead. No. I was uh, I was just going to plug IER's study, which was titled uh, "The Economic Effects of Immediately Opening Federal Lands to uh, Coal, Oil, and Natural Gas Development." Um, that I believe was a 2016 study. Um, would take readers through all of the different opportunities that exist with the agencies you're discussing and and how uh, leasing. The, these various properties is a potential economic windfall, uh, both for the economy and also in terms of royalties and, and things like that. Absolutely. And even if we, don't, if we don't open up new lands to oil and natural gas development, if, if we were just allowed to produce on the lands that are already open and designated for oil and natural gas development, that would be uh, a huge boon to the American taxpayer and to the American consumer. Um, so what happens is even on lands that have gone through a long planning process and have have been deemed appropriate, so again, um, wilderness areas, uh, national parks, various recreation areas are already off limits to oil and natural gas development. Um, but those areas that are already designated as open, it can still take years, if not decades, to produce from those lands because of various government holdups. And we saw that particularly do, during the Obama administration where there was just no political will to move forward 
So suddenly, not suddenly, I mean, it was pretty deliberate, but, you know, the government just wouldn't complete the environmental analysis that is necessary before a project can proceed. Even though companies were paying for the contractors to do all that analysis, the government just wouldn't move forward with it. And we can't even apply for a permit until that environmental analysis is done. Likewise, there were lands nominated for leasing Again, on those areas that had already been designated as appropriate for oil and natural gas, that the administration simply wouldn't bring up the sale. What we've seen with the Trump administration is that it is reversing many of those policies and just moving forward with develop with leasing and the environmental analysis and the, the permitting that is already specified in federal law, has been for decades, but they're just moving forward with it because they have the political will to do so. And we're seeing the job creation in the West, um, and particularly in areas um, that are pretty hot right now, like the Permian Basin. There's quite a bit of public lands in, on the New Mexico side, um, up in the Powder River Basin of Wyoming. There's quite a bit of interest there. And of course, the Bakken up in North Dakota continues to plug along as a very productive oil play. One of the big obstacles that came out of the Obama administration with the BLM was the the whole issue with the greater sage grouse. One of the members of our policy staff wrote a pretty long uh, article about what's going on there and then sort of the uh, wildlife protections. Can you talk about the greater sage grouse and... Uh, I think that story will really give people who aren't familiar with the way the BLM operates an idea of their overreach. Sure. So the sage-grouse is a great example. It is a wide-ranging species across 11 states and Canadian provinces. I forget the acreage offhand. I think it's somewhere in the order of um, their sage-grouse habitat over 165 million acres in the West. So we're talking about a very wide-ranging species. Um, the best data available comes from the states because they're the wildlife experts, not the federal government. And state data collected um, and acknowledged by the Fish and Wildlife Service shows that there are about 425,000, uh, that, that the population of sage grouse is about 425,000. So there are quite, you know, quite a few birds, quite um, an effort for decades across the West by states and localities to protect this species. It's an important species. Um, and again, it's not just the federal government that cares about protecting wildlife. The states have been very active in managing sage grouse for decades, and they've been working cooperatively to do so. But again, the philosophy of the Obama administration was that nothing emanates from anything but the federal government. So they put in place sage grouse plans that were pretty much a one size fits all approach across this huge swath of land in the West, particularly in the states of Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. And these plans were very much top down. They ignored all the efforts of the states, except in Wyoming, there was a bit of an exception in Wyoming. Um, ignored the good work going on at the county level and just were one size fits all. So we, along with many others, states, counties, cattlemen, environmental groups sued to, you know, sued against those plans when they came out in 2015. And the Trump administration has, is in the process of rewriting those 
just issued the final plans and there's there's some uh, protest period going on. So those plans haven't been, you know, the records of decision have not been signed yet, but they rewrote those plans to better account for all of the work that's being done at the local and the state level. So those plans are better than what we saw during the Obama administration. And again, they recognize that it's not just the federal government that is protecting the species, it's industry, it's landowners, it's ranchers, it's county commissioners, it's states. So the, those plans coming out should be better. Um, they'll protect the sage grouse, but they won't, they won't unnecessarily stop economic activity that is the lifeblood of rural communities all across the West. For listeners, if you want to check out IER's uh, perspective on that, the article that Alex mentioned earlier is titled are we finally free of foul folly and frog foolery? And that's by Hunter Pearl. And uh, what's the date on that, Alex? Um, it's from back in December. So yeah, it was, it was right when the, uh, the proposal was released uh, to make some of these changes. How about the, the legal challenges that Western Energy Alliance has become involved with recently? What's going on there? Well, um, we talked about some of our litigation on uh, regulatory, federal regulatory overreach. What we're seeing is that the environmental groups now, um, of course, they don't like the energy dominance agenda of the Trump administration because it would actually enable the moving forward with environmentally responsible oil and natural gas development in the West. So they have basically sued every lease sale, every parcel that has been leased since 2015. Not, not every, but, but the majority of parcels are involved in some lawsuits you know, almost almost all of them. So Western Energy Alliance has intervened to defend that leasing, particularly leasing in Wyoming, Nevada, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, um, Montana. Did I say Wyoming? Yep. Uh, it's always Wyoming. The, the bulk are in Wyoming. And so that will be uh, litigation that will go on for quite some time as it kind of grinds through the courts. But the environmental groups have tried to stop all leasing going forward. Because of our intervention protecting uh, that leasing, we didn't get a preliminary injunction against all future leasing. We had an activist judge in Idaho who wanted to do that, but we presented so much information showing how the government had actually followed the law that he couldn't quite get there. But um, it's really um, – it's really – a little dicey right now because you see activist judges that are really not following the law but just don't like oil and natural gas. So we're hoping that as um, the Trump administration gets in uh, more judges into the district and the circuit courts, and of course, you know, we'll see some precedents coming out from the Supreme Court as well, that we'll actually see a return to um, jurisprudence that actually follows the rule of law and not the preferred policy of some activist judges. Could you talk about the balance between environmental protection and uh, economic development and how you guys uh, approach that at Western Energy Alliance? Our litigation is only against overreaching regulation that went above and beyond what Congress mandated through actual law. So there is a bedrock of environmental laws that have been in place for decades, and we comply with 
thousands of regulations that emanate from the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act. So there is a bedrock of environmental law and literally thousands of regulatory requirements that emanate from that. And we comply with those every day. We happily comply with those every day because there is an impact from oil and natural gas development, just like there's an impact from wind or solar or any type of energy. And that impact needs to be minimized. Any risk from that development needs to be managed through regulation. And states and the federal government do that regulation. What we object to is when the federal agencies, like with the BLM methane rule or the hydraulic fracturing rule, go above and beyond the authority that Congress gave them and try to put in place regulations that are duplicative or just plain don't make sense. That's where we get involved. Um, so I, I'm glad you pointed that out. We absolutely are heavily regulated as we should be. Before we go, uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about here that uh, you guys are working on at Western Energy Alliance that uh, you'd like to let our listeners know about? Probably. I mean, we work on uh, so many various issues related to public lands and um, air quality and the like. I would guess I would just point out that this Green New Deal um, is almost laughable if if but it's really not funny. I mean, we all we saw this 10 years ago at the start of the Obama administration when we had politicians saying, oh, oil and natural gas is going away in 10 years. And they spent a lot of money. They wasted a lot of taxpayers money on, on federal energy policy that went nowhere. And 10 years later, of course, we're still using oil, natural gas, coal, because it's what actually powers our economy and keeps people safe warm in the winter, gets them to school and work, provides 24-7 electricity. You know, so we're, we're, it's almost like we're just repeating that bad history of, of unrealistic energy policy, but not only just repeating it, but doubling down on it and, and trying to switch to some type of socialist um, takeover of all energy and, and that's exactly the opposite of what has made America so successful. I mean, our energy is cheaper than in Europe, and that's why we're attracting more manufacturing. Um, we provide consumers with affordable energy, and that makes people's lives better. So this doubling down and, is just the wrong policy, and luckily I don't think it'll go very far, but it's just another round of fighting off bad policy that is not good for Americans. I agree. What this Green New Deal episode illustrates to me is that groups like ours and groups like yours still have a lot of education work left to do. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, where can people go to find out more about Western Energy Alliance? And uh, I know you guys have opportunities for people to get involved there, too. We're at westernenergyalliance.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at uh, Western Energy One. Great. Our guest today has been Kathleen Sagama, the president of the uh, Western Energy Alliance. Kathleen, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, and really appreciate all the great work of IER.